Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. If you're a listener and you haven't checked out the first three episodes of our All Things in Common series, I'd recommend pausing this episode now and starting with episode 30, the intro to this whole series. And having said that, we've got to the end of March, uh, and for your Patreon contributions to go directly to the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development in Nashville, Tennessee. They're building and expanding worker cooperatives there in a part of the city that is mostly communities of color and immigrant communities and has, of course, been heavily disinvested from. Together, we can make a small donation to their labor, gender, racial justice work that is undermining the exploitation of human beings at their places of work. And so I I love what they're doing. Um, And this is our last month where the January, February, March contributions will be going to them. Um, Check out my interview with Rosemary Hinkle-Rieger and Benny Overton in episode 25 to hear more about what a worker cooperative is and how it's different from a capitalist workplace. And then of course, like why you might want to work in one someday too. But so today I am super excited to introduce our listeners to a fellow disciple and comrade of mine, uh, Dean Detloff, the first 20 something to become a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> first off, Dean. I'm 30 now, so. Uh, <laughs> what'd you say? I've got stretch. I said I'm 30 now, so I have to make that money stretch a little <laughs> oh, further. Oh, true. Yeah, I'm sure it's running out. First off, Dean, congratulations. I mean, it's really an honor to have you on Faith and Capital. We've been going through a series on like how to get rich quick. And so my first question for you is on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like the, the Bezos, Gates, Buffett, Zuckerberg level, how hard did you have to work to make that first billion? Man, the first billion is definitely the hardest. Uh, the most difficult thing is pretending that you're doing all the work and nobody else is. That's really difficult. Uh, you have to really go out of your way to not recognize the labor of other people. Um, but, you know, once you can get over that moral hurdle, uh, the rest of the billions, they just keep coming. I mean, I'll say, yeah, like I haven't seen anyone else like touching your, bill. you know, the, the wealth that you've accrued. And I thought you did it all by yourself. So that's that's really interesting to hear you say, you know, there's, there have been times in my life, right. Where like, I'm like, it sure feels like I'm working hard, but I'm also not rich. So then I'm like, Oh, maybe I am lazy. Right. Um, and so another question I had is like, I've been trying to beat the system right for a while and get ahead of the game. So what should I secretly be investing in now before everyone else jumps in on the band, the bandwagon? Yeah, uh, it's a little late this time around, but I would say the uh, political primaries. That's what you really want to be secretly investing in as much as you can uh, before everyone else gets on the bandwagon. You want to get those kickbacks. You want to make sure they're kicking back to you and not to your best friend, Jeff Bezos, or uh, your best friend, Bill. That's Bill Gates. (laughs) You want to make sure they're kicking back to you specifically, and uh, you really need to muscle everyone out for that one. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for the advice. Uh, we're, you know, we're super happy for your first billion. And no, nah, no, nah, um, I'm just kidding, y'all. It's, uh, I think Sarah New uh, was the one who, you know, she, I interviewed her a couple months back, and I think she connected me to your podcast on Twitter, Dean. And uh, so this conversation has been in the works for a while now. It's, it's great to finally get to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks. And uh, that's great. I love Sarah's work. Everything that she's doing is so important and fascinating and just a great writer as well. So I'm, I'm glad that that's the intermediary. That's good, good company to have. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, would you want to actually introduce yourself and the work you're up to? Because unfortunately, I mean, well, I mean, fortunately, you, you are not a 20 something billionaire. <laughs> that's right. I am uh, now a 30 something uh, back, whatever the opposite of a billionaire is. <laughs> Um, I don't have a lot of money, but uh, whatever, I'm getting by. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I'm a journalist. Uh, um, I write freelance for a number of places, and I'm on the masthead at America Magazine, a Jesuit publication. I write on Canadian issues for them and, and other things. Um, I've written for a number of just outlets, I guess, in general, but mostly focusing on religious left kind of stuff. Um yeah, that, that sort of thing. I'm also a, a PhD student trying to wrap up a doctoral degree at a place called the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Um, I'm a 
Catholic and a communist. I uh, have this podcast, like you mentioned, the Magnificast that I co-host with a friend, Matt Bernico. And yeah, m most of my life is kind of orbiting around issues related to Christianity and the left, both academically and just kind of in terms of my personal life. Yeah, that's amazing. I, uh, I, I love all the work you do from, from the podcast to the writing. And so it's, uh, uh, I'm really excited to have you uh, on the show today. So, um, so on the Fa on Faith and Capital, we've been doing this All Things in Common series, and I thought this would be a great series to talk about communism with a fellow Christian and comrade. And so much ink has been spilt over the over the Acts two and four texts that discuss the early Christians like holding all things in common. And one of the topics that tends to come up around this text in commentaries concerns whether or not, right, the early Christians were like Marxist or were they capitalist or, you know, were they 20th century communists? And, and again, like if a listener hasn't checked out the first three episodes of the series, I offer uh, just my own personal perspective on that question. And, and I recommend you checking out that, uh, checking it out there. But as you and I know, Dean, communism can sound really scary for lots of folks, right? It's, it's just kind of assumed that every American, all of our neighbors, like uh, everyone really understands what communism is. And then, of course, we hate and we fear communism. And even though I, I was never encouraged to study the history of capitalism or to ask what it really is, or the histories of anti-colonial resistance or the history of socialism and communism, everyone just you know knows that communism was defeated in the past, and now there's uh, a new a bipartisan consensus, right, emerging that a communist China is rising and undermining all that is good and holy and free and Christian in the world that has been graciously delivered to us all by the U.S.'s military, American capitalism, and by the church's brave missionaries, right? So, so this is kind of the common perception of, of communism that we have in the U.S. Um, particularly. And so today, to start things off, I thought it, could, it might be helpful if you and I could maybe share some things that we think everyone should know about communists. And, and I, I brought a few, and maybe you can kind of bounce off uh, if you can confirm this or, or maybe, uh, uh, maybe it's not true. But I think uh, some, some things I, I'd like all the listeners to know about communists is that communists are actually allergic to democracy, right? It's not that we think it's a bad idea. It's just that we literally like break out in hives. And, and I know I personally get the sweats. And so I prefer authoritarianism for health reasons, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. During election season, I have to stay indoors. I can't even get a whiff of that democracy <laughs> on my nose or uh, I'm just in bed all day. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, it's just an allergy. And now the second thing I thought, you know, all the listeners should know about communists is that all communists secretly carry dictator trading cards you know it's like it's like Pokemon. Right. yeah exactly it's like pokemon but for communists like when we talk about yeah, or gotta catch them all you gotta catch all the capitalists actually all the dictators uh so like when we talk about organizing and party stuff we're actually advertising for like a commie card game night at the local library and so now everyone knows when when you when you hear the organizing or the party stuff about communism, there's a dictator trading card game night happening at your local library. Yeah, that's right. That's we call it a communism the gathering. The communism the gathering, exactly. Yeah, and so so the, the third thing I thought um, you know every I wanted everyone to know about communists is that. Christian communists, in particular, are actually trained infiltrators uh, here to destroy the gospel from the inside out. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of very good training. Uh, I will say <laughs> this is a, a good joke because, of course, uh, I don't want to destroy the gospel. But uh, there is a moment <laughs> of truth in it. Um, Christian communists, at least I myself, I do feel I, I do want to destroy a certain version of the gospel. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so yes. There, there's a moment of truth in that one. There is an actual moment of truth in that one. That's funny. Yeah. Now, okay. So obviously, you know, we're all we're just uh, we're just playing with all this stuff. But yeah, I did want to throw out. You know, we were talking a little bit about uh, before we started uh, the uh, recording, Dean. That so just as capitalism is diverse and pluralistic, you know, communism is also diverse and pluralistic. Right? It's not it's not monolithic. There have been different theories and beliefs and strategies. And you were mentioning how. Um, you think of communism as a, a certain strand, um, perhaps, uh, under, uh, under socialism. And in the previous uh, episodes, we've been talking about like, relationships based on hierarchy, exchange, and the principle of communism, right? From each according to their ability, to each according to their need. 
But that way of talking about communism, I would argue, is different from, but not necessarily unrelated to what we're going to talk about today. That's more of a, like a relational or an anthropological definition of communism. And so the communisms like we'll talk about today are also about relationships, but have asked questions that pre-modern people living before capitalism weren't really asking. And so I just wanted to kind of like the, to name that communism, uh, it's thought of as like a monolithic thing, but it's also pluralistic and, and, and diverse. Well, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Uh, obviously, there's a, a very long, very big bridge between the primitive communism of Christianity or many, many other groups in the ancient world. Lots of people practice that kind of thing. Uh, and what in the 19th and 20th centuries would come to be known as the, the communist movement. There's a, a wide gulf there. Um, and of course, there's a, a diversity among socialism of what does it mean? What kinds of socialisms are there? Is communism a, a sort of socialism? I tend to think of these things as communism as a subspecies, perhaps, of socialism as a more general category, uh, communism being one kind of tradition that even has its own internal plurality, right? Uh, not only the primitive communist distinction we were just making, but even in uh, contemporary life or in the 20th century, the Soviet Union is different from the People's Republic of China and Cuba and Vietnam are doing something different, et cetera. So, yeah, there, there's a very, very vast plurality, and, and that's important. That's something the work of a philosopher named Jody Dean, she likes to really emphasize, and I think is important, that the communist horizon um, is a very, very big horizon. It's not so big that it admits everything, but it's big enough that we should refuse uh, attempts, especially ideological attempts, to close down that term communism to only be associated with, let's say, a specific bad thing that happens in the Soviet Union or you know, in, in China or something like that. It's important to kind of keep that flexible and open. So if we were strangers and I had never had a conversation with you about communism before, where would you start? Yeah, uh, I like to start typically by saying that communism isn't about a specific state or person, somewhat like we were just talking about. So certainly it involves people like Lenin and Fidel Castro and you know Mao Zedong and all those folks. But uh, it's more importantly about asking and answering, I think, a, a very specific question. And that question is, who should own our ability to work and who should own the products that are made as a result of that work or the value that is produced by that work? And I think that's a helpful way in because that's also a question that capitalism is interested in. But of course, capitalism and communism answer that question in different ways. So for capitalists, people who privately own the wealth should be entitled to buy other people's labor, right? And to keep whatever comes from that, all the value that is created by it. Uh, for communists, people who work should be entitled to their means of working and to what they produce and to that value that is produced by it. So there are lots of social issues that stem from those two ways of answering that problem. But I think that's a helpful way of maybe disabusing people of the uh, preconceived notions they might have and also to get people thinking about what communists want you to think about, which is not primarily this or that person, but your own life and your relationship to your labor and your neighbors and, and their relationship to labor, et cetera. So that's where I usually start is with that basic question. What are we trying to think about, criticize and advocate for? Yeah. Okay. So, and, and yeah, you're kind of um, uh, diving into this already, but can you help us really uh, kind of start to think about why is communism even a thing? You, you started to mention the, the differences between how capitalism thinks who should own or direct people's labor and how um, communism has um, theorized about it. But yeah, why is communism even a thing, right? Like what sparked so many of the 19th and 20th century anti-capitalist analyses and communist movements? Yeah, it's a good question to ask. Um, in historical context, the 19th century had a very incredible acceleration of productive forces, technologies, uh, industries, that sort of thing. And it also had, along with that, an incredible acceleration of inequality. Um, so lots and lots of harrowing and horrific stories you can read about people uh, suffering under different industrial uh, economies in the 19th century in the 1800s. Uh, so capitalism has always been brutal, and, and its origins are especially brutal. If you read about the beginnings of capitalism and how it gets itself going, there's lots and lots of piles of bodies that it needs to uh, metabolize in order to become the economic system we have today. So in one sense, the communist movements that emerged in the 19th century 
are emerging as a response to that brutality. They emerge out of desperation. You know, many of the early communist leaders in the 1800s are people who have pretty intimate familiarity with what it means to be on the wrong side of capitalism or what it means to suffer as a worker. So people are trying to find an end to that. Um, in another sense, though, it also emerges out of people with, I think you could say, a, a really profound love for other human beings. Uh, people who think that if you really love one another, then you should live in cooperative relationships with each other. So that's what motivates, for example, a lot of Christians in the 1800s and then into the, the 1900s. Um, this example of uh, a dream of what they called a cooperative commonwealth, uh, an expression of God in a social sort of way. So I think those are really two of the biggest ways of, of understanding this. On the one hand, uh, communism emerges as a response to the production of a capitalist economy, and then in the 20th century, it continues that, right? These national liberation movements are responding to the imperialist appetites of capitalist uh, economies, that sort of thing. And then on the other hand, it does emerge positively or affirmatively as a, uh, an expression of commitments that people have. Okay, so like, so I hear you saying that capitalism, this thing called capitalism is emerging and, and people are trying to understand like what it is and how it's changing people's lives and communism um, it, it emerges as a response to that. Communists see a lot of violence and suffering and um, exploitation and just uh, massive death that's resulting from the emergence of capitalism in their communities or in their countries or in their entire you know, regions of the world. And so on one hand, I hear you talking about there's this kind of like this local um, uh, resistance to being dominated by people who have the money to, to buy and to direct their labor. And, and, and then also a resistance to becoming dependent upon capitalists, right, to put them to work. And then I also think that and you were touching on this as well. There's this general pursuit of emancipation from Western colonialism, right? And, and, and capitalist imperialism across the world. And, and I find it so interesting that that 19th and 20th century communism, it was so intertwined and interconnected with, with yeah, anti-imperialism and resisting European and, and U.S. just domination uh, across the entire world. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about meetings between European countries who get together to literally divide up the rest of the world amongst themselves, right, as though they, they have a right to uh, decide, well, Germany's going to get this part of Africa, uh, France is going to get that part, whatever. Um, and, you know, these are, are real meetings that uh, capitalist countries had to determine the fates of, of other people around the world. And as the colonial powers uh, had their own inter uh, part or interclass conflicts uh, during the First and Second World Wars, a number of people who had been colonized as uh, part of the capitalist expansion. Uh, of the 1800s especially and colonialism more broadly um, those people decided you know enough is enough and uh, you, you're exactly right to say that it's a reaction to the colonialism that is a necessary piece of capitalism so the capitalist economy is bizarre because it it needs to grow in order to continue to grow it's this kind of you know somewhat perverse uh, perpetual motion machine um, but eventually you run out of stuff in your own space, right? So you've got to go get somebody else's, and um, naturally it leads to this, this expansion. Uh, Lenin called imperialism the highest stage of capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so the anti-colonial response is a response to that. It's anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist because they're sort of of a piece. That's helpful. Yeah, I think it's really helpful, and and, and it's a it's an important thing for, uh, for the the conversation around socialism, communism, capitalism to be had. Is that is like I, I don't think a lot of folks even think about why communism emerged, right? It's just like this big bad evil out there um, for many um, kind of like pro capitalists. Um, but I think even just asking that question, right, like why did communism even emerge um, is it starts to undermine that that blind faith in the purity of capitalism or, or perhaps it could for some folks. So um, what I would. So, yeah. Yeah. So what would you say motivates um, most communists that, you know, uh, today? Yeah. Uh, also a great question. I mean, I, 
certainly I, you know, I can't exactly say what motivates every communist, but I don't think it's saying too much to say that communists are motivated by a desire to build an equitable society. Um, there are a lot more motivations that might be specific to each person, perhaps some of them even bad, uh, but that's the goal. So uh, for me, I'm motivated by my faith and by my historical experience. You know, and I, I think narrative is a very important piece of explaining how communism uh, operates or why one would become one. So, uh, you know, I come from a large uh, mixed family with lots of marriages and step siblings and, and all that kind of thing or half siblings, that sort of thing. And you know, my, my loved ones, a lot of them have been on the wrong side of capitalism their whole lives. So growing up, my mother was a social worker and my dad practiced uh, rural medicine by treating people outside the insurance system and that kind of thing. So seeing the populations they're working with, seeing the what's happening to my own family members, people who are close to me, and now of course being a, an adult myself who is uh, in a very precarious employment situation, all that feeds into a real uh, frustration at, the fact that things don't have to be this way. Um, again, other people have other motivations, perhaps even toxic ones, uh, but I think most people in the movement that I know are really motivated by some recognition that things could be different, uh, and communism shows us how to think about and work toward that. They're, they're motivated by that desire for an equitable society, that desire to recognize that there's nothing necessary about the situation that we're in now um, and so uh, there's this profound um, energy to change that sort of situation. Yeah, and and uh, you know you were mentioning this uh, the the wrong side of capitalism, right? And 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 for capitalists or and pro capitalists, they there isn't there there aren't sides, right? Uh, capitalism is for everyone, and and if you work hard enough or if you're uh, smart enough, then you everyone can win and everyone can be super super rich. But as we working people know that that's not the case. Um, and communists identify, right? Uh, they uh, identify that there is a there's there are two sides um, uh, of capitalism, and whether it's at your place of work or perhaps throughout the uh, the, the broader country, and then especially throughout the world, there are two sides of uh, capitalism, and communists are are committed to the exploited and oppressed um, side. That's right, and on that point too, I think. Communism is also trying to name a collective power that we often either forget that we have or don't know that we have. And I think for me anyway, that was really part of a tipping point uh, in terms of understanding the labor movement and communism uh, itself. Uh, I, I heard it, I still remember in a, a talk that was given by Boots Riley, who's the frontman of a communist um, hip hop group called The Coup. Um, he also directed a film called Sorry to Bother You. But uh, I remember a long time ago listening to a talk where he was talking about demonstrations and labor power and how having a big strike, uh, it used to be the case that a demonstration was called that because it was a demonstration of, of labor power. Um, it was the manifestation of labor power. And the threat is, look at all these people who are out here. If they don't go to work tomorrow, then uh, the capitalists aren't going to make any money and that will be bad for them. And that recognition that if we withheld our labor, we could make real demands that have to be answered, I think, is a sort of simple piece of that equation. The two sides of capitalism, as you were saying, the, the recognition that one of these sides, there's actually a lot more of us, uh, but it's difficult, perhaps, to understand our power unless we're capable of building some solidarity and for me at least the communist movement in the history of communism is a uh, an archive of how people have tried to do that have tried to build solidarity uh, and communist parties are supposed to be apparatuses that that funnel all that stuff that channel people into one big group that is supposed to uh, continue to remind people that hey we have the power and we can withhold our labor if we want to, whenever we feel like it. And of course, unions and many other groups are involved in that too. Um, but in any case, that's, I think, the biggest piece is to recognize not only are there sides in capitalism, but one side actually does have a lot more material power than the other if we could only find a way to be organized. That's excellent. Yeah, absolutely. I was also thinking, uh, this is interesting, right? Because uh, so we're two religious people and we're talking about um, communism and socialism and anti-capitalism, right? In, in a positive light. And one of the really common ways of thinking, uh, one of the more common uh, misconceptions about communism or communists is that 
all communists just like hate religion or, or hate religious people, you know, whatever that means, uh, especially Christians, right, in the U.S. And, and you wrote an article uh, titled uh, The Catholic Case for Communism. And in it, you talk about uh, Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic Worker Movement. And you, uh, you said that she noted the, that the people she saw joining communist parties and movements at that, at that time were, quote, motivated not by some deep hatred toward God or frothing anti-theism, but by an inspiration for a world liberated from a political economy that demands vast exploitation of the many for the comfort of a few. Did you want to um, uh, say a little bit more about uh, Dorothy Day's um, analysis of, of what she thought were motivating the communists that she knew in that day? Yeah, sure. Uh, the article I wrote because I came across this fascinating piece that Dorothy Day had written for America Magazine, the, the magazine that I published that article in as well. Um, and she had written it uh, in the middle of the Great Depression, which was the, the height of the communist movement in the U.S. Um, the communist movement was, uh, it was not a dirty word to be communist at that time. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of communists uh, running around, and Dorothy Day knew lots of them. She wrote for communist papers herself. She was very close with some pretty prominent party members, and that was true even as she left the communist movement more directly throughout her life. So I was really struck by this. Uh, so she made this comment that the communists she knew were not motivated by their hatred of the church, which is what many Catholics had thought at the time and still think, of course, but was rather motivated uh, by the, this kind of uh, profound love or, or by social justice, um, that sort of a thing. And she thinks ultimately that at that time she thought anyway, communists were even the, the, the best, the biggest hearted ones were sort of being duped because although they might have these lofty ambitions or personal motivations, uh, nevertheless, communism was going to destroy the church some way or other. Um, what was fascinating to me is that later uh, in the 60s, after the success of the Cuban Revolution, she visited Cuba and had a pretty significant change of tune. Um, she went because she had heard about all kinds of things that were going on there and wanted to see for herself and report back to the Catholic worker. And she makes this really interesting admission in one of her uh, letters or dispatches back that um, there is, in fact, a, a Christian form of communism. And uh, Christians can, in fact, participate in a communist society. And, uh, I mean, Dorothy Day, one of her strengths and weaknesses is that she's not a systematic thinker, right? She responds in the moment to what's in front of her. And uh, I've always found that very moving that um, she has this kind of reading of communism, which she, you know, to be fair, had earned by virtue of being heavily involved. Uh, but seeing it play out in a whole social, pro social uh, mobilization in Cuba uh, encouraged her to change her opinion. So th that's how I frame the article anyway in my own Catholic case for communism is to say someone like Dorothy Day, who's on the road to being a saint in the church, uh, she herself um, had at least tried to make a, a very subtle case <laughs> for communism in the 60s, uh, or at least a case that Catholics could thrive under communism uh, with certain qualifications. Yeah, yeah, I found that article uh, really brilliant uh, and really helpful for myself. And so I'll, I'll link that in the show notes um, for sure. Um, so, you know, you're, you're already kind of mentioning, and, and, and Day talked about this too, but so how might these motivations, right, uh, that many communists, uh, these, these motivations and values that many communists um, hold themselves align with motivations and values that uh, many of us Christians, uh, not all, but, but many of us Christians uh, would subscribe to? That's a great question, and it's one that I wish more people would ask, uh, because <laughs> the presumption is perhaps they do, right? <laughs> Maybe there are some ways that they align. Um, and in the last, you know, many years now, I guess, uh, I've, I've spent time mostly reading Christians who participated in communist movements in order to try to understand that more deeply. And some of the connections are maybe obvious at the surface level, you know, Christianity is supposed to be about loving your neighbor and being with the poor and speaking against the powers that be so you can draw these kind of basic analogies maybe. Um, but I, I always like to look at material situations. And in a country like Nicaragua, for instance, where in the 20th century there was a series of, of uh, dictators associated with this family, the Somozas, um, in that country, Anastasio Somoza, who is the last dictator to be around, 
um, he was literally selling the blood of poor Nicaraguans to American hospitals. And I always point that out because that's a situation, amongst many other things that were happening, tortures and disappearances, that's a situation that led a lot of Christians to say that participating in a revolutionary movement was an obvious extension of their faith. If they said they cared for the poor, then surely they couldn't stand by as the poor were being drained of their blood for the rich in the U.S. Um, to take maybe another example, uh, a priest like the Brazilian uh, priest Fray Beto, uh, he's a great admirer of Fidel Castro. He did a very important series of interviews with Castro published as Fidel and Religion. For him, communism has represented a real social expression of Christian commitments to what in the Catholic tradition many of us call the preferential option for the poor. So I guess maybe we could say there's a sort of positive and negative side to this. Um, positively, the ministry of Jesus encourages us to think not just about our individual welfare, but also the welfare of the whole community, especially the, the vulnerable. And that means thinking through how to organize a society where we take care of one another. Uh, negatively, capitalism is abusing the poor at every turn. So for Christians who take seriously the condemnation of the rich in the Bible and in our tradition, uh, if we have the power to change this kind of society, and we do with our labor power, then we have an obligation to do that. Absolutely. I mean, um, so it's like whether you're concerned about maybe having a, a better work life or fighting racial and gender hierarchies, um, you know, ending homelessness or or making sure everyone has access to healthcare, uh, or maybe it's uh, caring for creation, right? And both like enjoying and protecting its beauty. Um, I think Christians, and what I hear you saying, both Christians and communists do share, or some of us, we do share a lot of the same values and motivations. And um, I think we have way more in common than we do uh, not. <laughs> Yeah, if I could draw one more kind of similarity that came to mind, um, I think there's something about Jesus that encourages us to be communists, in, e even in the modern sense, not just in the, the accents. You know, Jesus is crucified between two thieves as a, as a criminal, among other criminals, and he's executed by the state, right? And I often think about how uh, Karl Barth, who actually had a lot of time for Bolshevism, he's a, a German theologian for people who don't know, um, he called that the first Christian community, uh, that community among the people on the cross. Hmm. And that always made me think of uh, Eugene Debs' statement to the court in 1918, uh, which is very famous, where he says, uh, while there's a lower class, I'm in it. And while there's a criminal element, I'm of it. And while there's a soul in prison, I'm not free. And Debs was the leader of the Socialist Party of America, so not a communist per se, but also not, not a communist exactly. Uh, but in, in any case, there, there's something about that statement that really resonates with me. Um, and that's what it means to follow Jesus, right? To take the side of people who get crucified by capitalism every day, who are criminalized and put into the lower class. Uh, it's Christians who are of that sort of uh, strata or what uh, the Bible refers to as the wretched of the earth or the scum of the earth. Um, that's really where Christianity uh, is supposed to, to thrive. It, it, of course, it, it has not historically done that very well uh, in, in many parts of the world, but at least to me, there, there is a kind of resonance between the life that Jesus identifies himself with and the life that the socialist or communist movement tries to identify itself with. That's, uh, that's really, uh, really uh, powerful. And and I think, like, what I hear you talking about, this identity piece, uh, I think Christianity and communism both, yeah, can speak to the power um, of identity, both its liberative power and then also its its very oppressive power. And a lot of, uh, you know, definitely this, like, white American Christianity um, has encouraged folks to not uh, identify with the the most vulnerable among us it's it's this like it's this like fetishism with identifying as middle class right not poor um it's identifying with the rich as like one day we could um achieve their wealth and their power it's also it's also encouraged us to identify as white right this this not um black um here in the u.s or uh yeah and um uh, same thing with gender but but I, what i hear you saying is that Christianity and communism, um, they have this uh, mutual affiliation, or there, there could, there, there could be this, this strand of commitment to identifying with those who are suffering the most. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, historically, 
that has been the the mediating tissue for these two groups to come together in revolutionary movements on the ground is that common recognition. I, I sometimes I think about a situation in the Philippines, for example, where there was a dictatorship there in the mid 20th century, and the irony of the dictatorship was uh, it had wrongly labeled any opposition to it as communist. And in so doing, the actual communists ended up uh, gaining uh, all kinds of uh, allies from otherwise progressive or, or maybe liberal type Christians who wouldn't otherwise have probably talked to communists like they don't in many other parts of the world. Uh, but in this case, because the right wing was so adamant about labeling everybody as a communist, uh, they found themselves, you know, at the same rallies and stuck in the same jail cells and that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. again, you know, there's just this kind of, uh, yeah, as you put it, an affinity or affiliation that, that emerges uh, by virtue of those commitments. Yeah. And, and I think another thing that I've just been learning a lot, um, a, a lot about this year uh, for, for a couple of different reasons, but is, is this thing about like solidarity. And, and I've actually had to kind of go through this, this shift in my understanding of myself and other people, because, uh, you know, I grew up uh, evangelical conservative, and then I went to a, a liberal seminary. And, and, and just recently, I've been diving into this what does it mean to think about ourselves as being radically in solidarity with one another? And I think a lot of people, when they say like identifying with the poor or, you know, or, or liberation theologies, um, identifying with the oppressed, that the poor, the oppressed are always located outside of us. And so I think a lot of folks, um, there's this tendency, especially among liberal circles to think of it as, as charity or advocacy or even like activist work. When I think there's something much more, profoundly liberative and potentially, yeah, potentially like radically transforming of our lives in the world when we see people who have less than us, um, who, I mean, they may be really poor, they uh, may be gendered or racialized differently than us, but to see that we have common interests um, together and that this identifying with the poor is not about seeing those who are worse off than us as below us and that we need to lift them up, but it's, it's about seeing this common struggle and this common movement for radical transformation for us all collectively. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And to recognize, too, that, like you said, the poor are not external to Christianity. Um, you know, there, there are versions of Christianity for which that's probably true, that uh, the poor are external to certain kinds of Christian expressions. Um, but the kind of Christianity that I'm interested in or invested in, and the only kind I think is worth participating in for my part, is the one that is of the poor and, and part of the poor on behalf of the poor because uh, it is the poor. <laughs> um, you know, that uh, certainly the poor too are not um, a, a monolith, right? There, there are non Christians among the poor, obviously, all kinds of uh, differences that emerge there, but um, Christianity has to find a way of. Um, uh, working toward collective liberation that starts from the position of the oppressed. Uh, and I think that's really the key is to recognize that Christianity is only as good as it finds itself uh, coming out of that sort of solidarity. Mm. So why do you think communists and socialists, right, post-World War II were targeted to be demonized and ousted from the institutions that they had for decades been moving more freely in, right? Like, like institutions like uh, unions and universities, political seats, churches and denominations, and other places of public influence. Yeah, also a good question. Um, I mean, one kind of simple answer, I suppose, is because in large part, communists were a, a real tangible threat. Um, they were a problem or especially the capitalist state in particular, you know, th there were hundreds of thousands of communists, like I mentioned earlier, in the 20s and 30s, and they were really the primary organizing force in not just the labor movement, but also in the anti-racist movement, the women's movement, other kinds of struggles. Uh, they were really a threat on, on many fronts, multiple fronts. Um, you know, th these are the people who even felt like the New Deal was not quite enough for them, uh, that the New Deal would... Mm -hmm. um, not protect women in the way that it ought to, or they had concerns that it wouldn't protect uh, black workers in the way that it ought to, et cetera. So um, with the popularity of the Soviet Union too, after the Second World War, um, the US again rightly recognized that they would need to stamp this out uh, with the full power of the state if they wanted to keep not just capitalism running smoothly, but also white supremacy and other 
forms of oppression that are important to the functioning of the U.S. as it, as it has historically emerged. So in that sense, they have to be purged because they are a, a real problem. Uh, the state is, you know, operating from its own logic, it's right to do that. Morally, of course, it is bad, but yeah. mm -hmm. uh, it makes strategic sense. Um, and, you know, communists had an incredible success organizing, for example, rural black farmers in Alabama. That was a massive um, issue for the state. Uh, in Hawaii, the communist movement became so strong that uh, when Congress people were talking about granting Hawaii statehood, one conservative politician said it, it would be like giving Moscow two votes in the Senate. Um, you know, that, that was a movement organizing across race and gender, mm -hmm. foregrounding indigenous liberation, et cetera. So it's kind of like what choice did the ruling class have other than to make it literally illegal to be a communist? Yeah, that that's a great example. And, and so like what ways and, and and I think you just gave one, but like what ways were, say, U.S. imperialism, this this white American nationalism and Christianity, right, wedded in the mid 20th century anti-communist fervor? Yeah, also a good question. Um, it's important to see these things as uh, attached um, or interlinked in particular because I think there's sometimes a tendency among kind of radical Christian types to say, if you're a true Christian, then you'll be against capitalism. Uh, but the problem is there are lots of Christians, real Christians for Christian reasons, mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, who found uh, plenty of support for, you know, supporting imperialism and, and white American nationalism, as you put it. Um, one kind of place to start is just to note that historically, uh, Business-oriented Christianity became a, an intentional partner of U.S. imperialism and white American nationalism. So uh, just to give one example, maybe evangelicalism as a tradition emerges directly alongside opposition to the New Deal, for instance. Um, and there's also, of course, a heavy right-wing Catholicism that develops and mainline denominations don't exactly form a, a vanguard for the revolution, to say the least. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, things get especially bad, I think, as national liberation movements around the world kick off in the 60s and 70s. Um, in Latin America, especially, although not exclusively, um, the U.S. took a, a deep interest in stopping left-wing governments and movements. And many of those were rooted in or funded by liberation theology, both Catholic and Protestant. Um, to give maybe some concrete examples, uh, Guatemala had a period where it was ruled by an evangelical dictatorship that persecuted Catholics. It's a really bizarre situation. Mm -hmm. And that regime was not only supported by outspoken figures like Pat Robertson um, and other televangelists, but they raised funds for that murderous government. I mean, there's a direct kind of link there. Mm. Uh, the same is true of the Contras in Nicaragua. Uh, for people who don't know, there was a successful revolution in, in Nicaragua throughout the 70s, which was immediately targeted by right-wing uh, paramilitaries that were funded by the U.S. So tons of money are, are poured into the Contras, not just from the Reagan administration, but also from the pockets of evangelicals in the U.S. They held all kinds of fundraisers for this. And, you know, that's especially awful because the Contras are fighting the Sandinista government which is, you know, not without its problems, but undoubtedly the greatest example of Christian Marxist cooperation in history. Mm. Uh, and of course, a lot of the U.S. government's messaging understands itself in white Christian terms anyway, um, explicitly directed against people of color, including Christians of color and their white comrades. So uh, you really can't understand U.S. imperialism or white American nationalism without the Christian peace. Um, that's a supremely important point, especially for Christian Marxists to recognize that uh, we're involved in an internal struggle for the fate of our own faith tradition, and uh, the class struggle cuts through um, our own faith. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so communism and Christianity, what would you say, what do you think they have to offer one another? Uh, yeah, also a great question. Um, let me start with the uh the why do Christians need communism piece. Um, I think Christians need communism for two reasons. The first is to think through questions of production. Uh, I, I think Christians have a hard time understanding just how political economy operates. We, we tend to sort of default to this idea that uh, we should just be sharing things. Um, this communist named Rosa Luxemburg, she named it a communism of consumption. So we have this assumption, and it's quite radical, of course, that uh, we should hold all things in common and consume together, um, which is impressive. 
But uh, or Rosa Luxemburg, excuse me, argued that we need a communism of production. Mm. Uh, and I think that there's no reason that Christians can't get on board with that. We just have to sort of need to be taught how to do it. Um, so what and, do you and what um, do you mean specifically by um, production? Because I think <clears throat> on the consumption side, a lot of people and, and, the, and when we talk about sharing, people can can really easily uh, more tangibly. Uh, it's more common for us to talk about those things, right? In in secular and religious circles, sharing things, um, yeah, yeah, cons- consuming things together. But but what do you mean uh, more particularly by uh, production? Yeah, it's important to ask that question. Um, so, like I said, let's say you have a, a Christian communal experiment, right, where everybody has their own jobs, whatever, this person's a graphic designer, that person is a, a factory worker, this person works in fast food or whatever, and across all those class differences, um, they all commit to uh, having, I don't know, like a shared bank account, let's say, and uh, they, they distribute things each according to their need, just like in the Book of Acts, um, and that, that's the idea. Uh, that is... A, a radical thing and people do it and, and it is impressive. It, it's a good thing. Um, so I don't mean to like say that it's not a big deal because it is, but uh, what we really need is a communism of production, which is to say um, not only the communism of the, uh, the goods or um, wages that we receive, but the very way in which we get wages that has to be socialized or communized. So um, that might mean, for instance, uh, you know, you've done these episodes on cooperatives. That's one way of doing it. Um, having uh, a cooperative sort of work model is an attempt to say that we should all own these kinds of ways of working together in common. Um, the communist tradition says uh, we have to also scale that up such that uh, we all, as a public, own uh, all the industries that are available to us. Um, historically, there has often been a mix of these economies in communist countries. In Cuba, for example, um, all kinds of industries were immediately nationalized, which is what communists want to do. We want to have it all nationalized as far as we can. But uh, Fidel famously um, allows for, and Cuba still has, uh, cooperative farming to kind of function. And that's really a, a backbone of Cuban society. Uh, Lenin, too, was faced with the question of what do you do with cooperatives? And he felt, well, you know, uh, there's no reason to harass them. Like, at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want people to have um, a democratic say over their workplace and what happens there. Uh, And again, I I think Christians have lots of reasons to find their own path to affirming that. uh, But for whatever reason, we're not really able to kind of come up with it on our own. So we need communism to, to help us sort that out. So, yeah, so what I hear you saying is that for Christians, one thing that we can learn from the tradition of communism or from uh, our communist friends and neighbors and coworkers is that is we can focus more particularly on how things are being produced um, and who gets to decide how workers right um, uh, spend our time and how we spend it at work. Um, and then also how we'll distribute all the all the profits that we uh that we produce. That's really helpful. So, so how about on, on in reverse? What do you think uh, Christianity has to offer to communists or to uh, communism, the future of communism? Sure, sure. Yeah, let me just say uh, one second, very quick point on the uh, Christian piece. Um, the other side is, I think communists can help us figure out where our own faith is uh, ideologically contributing to capitalism mm. and other forms of domination. And so, I, I guess that's pretty straightforward. But um, absolutely, yep. Yeah. On that reverse side, though, I think communists can be helped by Christianity uh, in a few ways. First, it's a tradition that has a lot of adherents who need to be mobilized. So uh, strategically, I mean, they have to deal with this. So, you know, Um, but beyond that, you know, Christianity does offer really powerful rhetoric and spiritual tools that communists need. You know, communism isn't isn't easy. It's, It's very hard. Um, I, I'm very suspicious of a certain trend in socialism that says uh, it's this, this sort of luxury space communism uh, meme, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, we can have a, a sort of middle class future full of infinity pools for all, um, you know, I don't know, maybe in a thousand years, but not in any near future. Um, in the near future, if, if by some miracle we got communism in a place like the U.S. or Canada, Communism would probably look an awful lot more like Cuba. You know, it's it's a nation with a history of taking blow after blow and staying on its feet through all of that. Um, and it's going to look more like that than the consumerist paradise of the current middle class. 
Um, Christianity has a long tradition of renunciation. You know, we, we, we have a, a spirituality that tries to help us sort that out. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's really a significant gift that I hope Christians could help other people um, or come alongside other people in those sort of transitional moments. Um, maybe one more thing I can say, which I say with a lot of hesitation, is that Christianity should always call our attention to the marginalized, no matter what the society might be. Mm. Um, obviously, a lot of Christians don't do that. Um, so I don't think it's worth saying this is what Christianity is in itself, because it's a lot of things. Yes. But liberation theologians have demonstrated that every society has marginalized people. Um, and Christians, the ones worth fighting for anyway, try to minister and highlight the struggles of those people. Um, it, it's not a guarantee. You know, I wish I could say with confidence that that's what Christians contribute. Uh, but I think what people like Fray Beto, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Ernesto Cardinale, a Sandinista priest, um, Marcella Althus Reed or James Cohn, just to name some liberation theologians, uh, what they and others get us to consider is that no social order is immune to mistakes or to marginalizing people. And within a communist project or movement, that might be a helpful tool to build a just world for all people if Christians can understand themselves as that's our vocation and communists can sort of trust that Christians are, are attempting to amplify uh, the cry of, of the poor and marginalized even in a communist situation. Um, that's wildly optimistic and idealistic and I'm not 100% sure I believe it myself, but <laughs> it's one that I'll, I'll hazard here at the end. Uh, Dean Detloff. First 20-something to become a billionaire, lover of affinity pools in outer space. Thank you so much for uh, join, for joining uh, me on uh, Faith and Capital. I really appreciate you, dude. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Chase. And I should mention at the end, too, uh, Chase has been on the Magnificast in the past with a great episode on uh, reading the Bible in a revolutionary way. So um, I encourage people to check you out over there as well. Right on. Yeah. And I will, um, I will link your Catholic case for communism article in the show notes. And, uh, again, thanks Dean. Appreciate you. Friends, thanks for listening. And a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.